0: I'm Jill Shaw, and this is Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today served in the Obama administration in many roles and is the current CEO of the Obama Foundation. David Seamus is a first-generation native of Taunton, Massachusetts. In 2007, he was appointed deputy chief of staff to Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick in 2009, he joined the Obama administration as a deputy assistant to the president, working with senior advisors David Axelrod and David Plouffe. He then served as director of opinion research for President Obama's re-election, and later David became assistant to the president and director of the Office of Political Strategy and Outreach. David, thank you for joining me today. It's great to see you.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, no, this is great. I'm excited to talk to you about um, what you're doing now at the Obama Foundation. But first, can we talk a little bit about your background? You're from Massachusetts. You grew up here, and uh, you worked for Governor Duval Patrick back in the day. Can you talk a little bit about that and and your early days in government?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. And in fact, uh, it's so odd, Jill. Anytime I think about. Those early days, there's just like this feeling that immediately pops up. And I'm sure that's the same with everybody. But I grew up in Taunton in the middle of a Portuguese immigrant community. And so literally, Jill, it was like an enclave in Ward 3 of Taunton, an old manufacturing city in Massachusetts, and all of the neighbors for about a half a mile radius. Yeah were all Portuguese immigrants, uh, all mostly from the Azores Islands. The church on the corner, mass at St. Anthony's was in Portuguese. The little corner grocery store served Portuguese food, you know, and, and home was this constant Portuguese music and the language. I didn't speak English pro- uh, probably until I was five. And so that kind of... Immersion uh, in a community, but then going off during the day to school, I've often reflected it was kind of these uh, journeys into America that I would take. And I would switch from being the Portuguese kid at home yeah. and the comfort that it gave me, and then just developing the language and the facility to, to integrate. And baseball became my vehicle. Where if I was enough of a Red Sox fan, uh-huh. that was enough of my bona fides to all of the other kids that I wasn't just a Portuguese kid. I was an American.
0: How'd you figure that out?
1: Uh, just watching the way at school everybody followed the Red Sox the, and talked about the Red Sox. And, and I, you know, I remember like watching on the black and white television and my dad's like, well, what is that? Yeah. Well, that's baseball. That looks silly. Don't you have any homework to do? Right.
0: Right. Classic. So,
1: those are really early memories, and they were formative insofar as what I ended up doing for someone like Deval Patrick. How so? So, when he brought me on, I had been his debate partner. Oh, really? Yeah. How
0: did you earn that seat? That's pretty cool.
1: Sheer luck. John Walsh, who was his campaign manager, who is now Senator Ed Markey's chief of staff? Yeah, I had known John for a very long time, and Jill. I had the amazing responsibility at that moment of being the Bristol County Register of Deeds. Okay. John called me up and he said, "Have you heard of Deval Patrick?" I said, "I've heard of him." He said, "What do you think of him?" I said, "He has no chance of winning." <laughs>
0: uh,
1: <laughs> he said, well, "I disagree with you, but would you be open to being his debate partner?" I said, John, uh, I've never done anything like that. He's like, you'll be fine. I said, why will I be fine? And he said, because you understand that a political debate isn't Olympic Greco-Roman wrestling. It's the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> oh, geez, and, yeah. And you'll be perfect for that. So I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't that a compliment? Know, I don't know, did say. And so literally, Jill, uh, the first time I met candidate Patrick, Deval mm. Patrick, was in the Charlestown headquarters and there were about 20 people in the room in Wax Deval. I'm already at the podium. Mm-hmm. We exchanged pleasantries and then I spent an hour and a half insulting him in every imaginable way, uh, imaginable way, and in, in literally pushing the envelope to condition him yeah. so that anything that Attorney General Riley or uh, the other opponents could throw at them would pale in terms of getting an emotional charge uh, out of him. And so it was a mix of, you know, ad hominem attacks, talking points from both the right and the left, and sometimes a policy-based and substantive critique
0: Mm.
1: of what he was saying. Fortunately, he invited me back for round after round after round, and then I became his deputy chief of staff. What that role was essentially was I sat at the intersection of policy development, communications, and politics. And in his mind, he said, I want to have one person there who, as the policy is being developed by the policy people, has an eye and an ear towards how we're going to sell it within the building on Beacon Hill Mm -hmm. and more broadly in a way that's consistent with the values and the vision that I want to articulate to the people of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And so the reason that harkens back to growing up in an immigrant community in Taunton was that I was always looking for these kind of points of both commonality and difference and finding a way to blend them into Tip a narrative.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. So that, that was a really perfect background for what you did. And it sounds like you just gave us kind of an inside baseball view on how politicians build Teflon coding as they head out into the world. So how did you, because you you moved from his administration to the Obama administration, which is a pretty vertical rise. And how, how did that happen?
1: More luck. <laughs> um, Deval Patrick's chief strategist was a man named David Axelrod. Yeah. In 2008, after Barack Obama won the presidency, Governor Patrick, unbeknownst to me, called David and said, I have this guy. I don't know in what capacity, but I know that he would love to serve the president-elect. And so, Jill, true story, um, my wife and I are in D.C. the day before the inaugural in January of 2009. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We are at a Bank of America withdrawing God knows how much. Uh, and my flip phone rings, and it's someone who's purporting to be David Axelrod, <laughs> whom I've never spoken to. I immediately say, "Yeah, right. I'm Barack Obama," and was ready to hang up. He paused and said, "No, you're not, because I was just with him." Oh my goodness! Paul Patrick told me to call you. I then blurted out, uh, "I won't repeat it for this audience." I swear, apologize. <laughs> and said, how can I help you? <laughs> he said, I'm, in, I'm looking for a deputy, and I'm wondering if you're open to an interview. Uh, and so 48 hours later, I am sitting in the entry to the west wing of the White House. The first thing I see is Chief Justice Roberts walking by because he had just readministered the oath because they had messed it up. Oh, yeah, day. right. And then out of another door walks... Secretary of State designate Hillary Clinton. Amazing. And in half an hour later, I am standing in David Axelrod's office where he spends an hour talking me out of a job that I don't have. Hmm. What he said was, well, how much money are you making right now? What's your salary? And I told him. Yeah. And he said, well, maybe I can pay you 60 or 70 percent of that. Um, he then said, you know, how much time do you spend with your family? Uh, and I'm like, well, you know, I've got a hard job, but I see them every day and the weekends are pretty good. He's like, well, maybe Sundays. Uh, and he kept on, Jill, this litany of horribles. And at the end, he said, okay, are you still interested? And I said, yes. Yeah. And he looked at me, he's like, why? Right. <laughs> and my response was, I am the son of Antonio and the two Portuguese immigrants. I am sitting in the West Wing. Of the white house or the possibility of serving the president of the united states yeah um of course we will sacrifice whatever we need to in order to serve and clearly i had cleared that although and my wife didn't know the full details of the yeah, sacrifice right, right but that's the way the connection was made again it was like the john walsh connection to deval patrick
0: huh But you must have had these things in your mind, though. Did you want this to be your journey?
1: Um, I had always wanted to, from an early age, be in government and engage in politics. But I never imagined, you know, either being a deputy chief of staff to a governor of Massachusetts or ultimately an assistant to the president of the United States. That was not part of a a plan, you know, maybe run for mayor someday.
0: Right, right. uh, Right.
1: Or would be a state senator, you know, if, if I was allowing myself to dream. Yeah. Um, but not that.
0: What did your parents think when you told them you were headed to Washington? Uh,
1: so they had been conditioned, uh, because when I told my mom that I was leaving the Registry of Deeds Jill, to be a deputy chief of staff to the governor of Massachusetts, yeah, she burst into tears. Yeah. Uh, of of she was distraught. Oh. Oh, and it makes perfect sense in retrospect. Here's what she said. She said, you have a six-year term. You live a minute from home. You make more money than your father and I ever imagined. and So you're about to work for someone else. Maybe he'll be there for eight years. It's an hour and a half commute why would you ever leave something that you can literally have for the rest of your life to do that?
0: So rational.
1: So completely rational. And yep. so by the time Washington occurred, right, she had already moved beyond the stability of life. Yeah. It was a tremendous, as you can imagine, sense of pride. And they did not, neither my mom nor my dad, uh, who both are still alive, Uh, waited to visit the white house until the latter part of 2016 they didn't they my dad refused to go in this kind of immigrant humility type of thing where it's like you know that building that is a special place i'm i'm not going my mom finally told him you know stop talking he's going and um the day they visited it was, it was super funny and uh, again my dad kept on looking around my office and my office was uh, right outside of the situation room and so military personnel coming in and out this bustle of activity and he looked really skeptical he's like is this really your office or like in the back of his so this 90s, a set of west wing Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, do you like work on the other side of right. DC and a buddy just lets you be here? Right, right. But I finally convinced them. yes, this is my office. An hour later, I tell them to sit in this hallway and I said, look, I, I just have to go get some papers. I'll be right back. A door opens. And all of a sudden, De Linda and Antonio Simas of, of 29 Purchase Street, Taunton, Massachusetts are greeted by the president of the United States.
0: <laughs> then it was really real.
1: It, and all and they stand up like Marines at attention. Oh. And he, Jill, grabbed them after he hugged them both. He walked them into the Oval Office, sat them on either side of the Resolute desk. Wow. Uh, and then thanked them for their sacrifice and their love for the country, and for, he said, you know, thank you for um, allowing your son to serve not just me, but more importantly to the people of the United States of America. I'm deeply grateful to the two of you.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, the two of them were, you know, awash in tears. And at dinner that night, my dad, again, a very smart, uh, military man with a fourth grade education, you know, said to me that what an honor it was. Yeah. Uh, and you, you think about the immigrant journey. Never in a million years would he and my mother have imagined that after landing at Logan Airport on a cold day in 1968. Yeah would they be meeting a president of the United States? And What a country.
0: Yeah, what a country. And it does, it feels to me like when you talk about serving those roles that you felt like it was a real honor as well. And and you were first deputy assistant to the president, but then you were the director of opinion research during the re-election campaign. And so can you talk a little bit about, from your perspective, because you were really trying to keep the white house in sync with the pulse of america how did you do that like where like where did you have your ear to the ground that you you know really kind of understood where america sat and what they wanted to hear
1: it was it was the best part of my job And essentially in general we used many different modes but first uh, it's important to begin with why there were no instances where the opinions we were gathering were being used by the president to determine what to do. It was mostly, okay, we're thinking about X, Y, and Z. I need to understand all of the fault lines. Basically because he took the concept of the consent of the governed super, super seriously. Yeah. Uh, And, the presidency unique to i think any political office in the united states but, uh, in two ways one it's the only one elected by everyone yeah and number two it is the most isolating position it's that's the paradox everyone elects you but essentially once you're there you are sheltered off From people, and it's rare that any people ever are direct with you anymore because now you're no longer Barack Obama or George Bush or Donald Trump or Ronald Reagan or whomever. You are the president, right? And it's very, very different. Hmm. So we employed a variety of different um, uh, ways to look at that. For me, it was focus groups, and so over a course of a ninety-year period, there were hundreds of nights. In my routine, Jill, as I would fly into Des Moines, for example, on a Tuesday night, I'd sit at a bar in my jeans and Red Sox paraphernalia, no doubt.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A strike up conversations, usually about sports and family and friends with anyone around me, usually the bartender first, and then extending all around. And, you know, maybe 45 minutes or an hour into these discussions, someone would bring up politics just in the course of normal conversation right. And my job at that point was just to not to judge not to direct the conversation but to listen and to try to get under the hood as much as possible that was tuesday night wednesday night the formal piece of it i'm behind a two-way mirror mm-hmm. listening first to eight women and then eight men um, and they were selected because they represented the generally the middle of the electorate. Mm-hmm. People who vote for Democrats and Republicans, people whose opinions of Barack Obama are, were somewhat positive or somewhat negative.
0: Yeah, right. Uh,
1: and frankly, that's most people, which is something that I learned over those hundreds of nights. And Jill, those sessions, two hours each, were like breathing. It was just finally a way to just get a uh, candid, non-filtered, non-mediated, non-ideological, non-intellectual framework conversation from human beings about their family, their communities, what they trusted, what they didn't trust when uh, when the subject of something in government was introduced which is usually in the second half of the discussion by that point they had established a rapport with one another and you could just see the people kind of leaning in and they developed kind of impressions of each other right and then they would begin to react to immigration or tax policy or healthcare policy and uh, Jill, all of those discussions reminded me of being 23 years old
0: yeah and
1: running for school committee and in Taunton Massachusetts and knocking on doors. How so? Well, because when I did that at 23 even though I had studied the provisions of the Massachusetts Education Reform Act yeah. in tremendous detail and I had my own policy ideas yeah you know, if I talked to a thousand people, maybe five of those thousand probed me on what I thought about, school choice or charter schools. or Everyone else wanted to know the following. Where do you go to church? Mm -hmm. What street do you live on? Do you play sports? Where do your parents work? They were making these basic human connections that in retrospect weren't about whether or not I was going to make this reasoned decision about policy A, B, C, or D, but they wanted to know whether or not a, they trusted me or had a good impression of me, for the purposes of saying, "Okay, I think this person will be reasonable."
0: So they were trying to get a sense of, "Are you their people?" Yes. And d- does is that true when we're talking about the presidency as well? Is that how we as Americans are judging our leader? Is we're trying to get a sense of, "Are you our people?" And and I'm just trying to understand how that explains. Donald Trump <laughs> being president,
1: a hundred percent yes. Here's an example <laughs> that would drive our domestic policy council nuts and our communications team crazy at the White House. You spend weeks preparing for a rollout. You've got a media strategy on television, radio, social media around X. Yeah, I'm in. Somewhere in in Colorado, listening to voters, the week after our big rollout, Um, moderator of the group says, so, when Barack Obama's name comes up, what have you heard about him recently? Silence. And then, you know, the moderator will probe and say, well, did you hear about ABC and And Someone will say, yeah, 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 I heard something about him. What do you think? Well, I mean, I I don't know enough about it. And then someone would say, "Hey, but I saw this picture of him at a basketball game with his two daughters." And now the room just starts in this animated discussion of those qualities that he has that they really liked and appreciate. Yeah. Right. And so now don't don't misunderstand uh, essentially that distinction I just made. Um, um, If people had time to really focus in on the specific provisions of policy A, B, C, or D. Yeah. And the background and the expertise to discern, which I don't have. Right. The efficacy of policy A versus B in a macro level with all of the distinctions and the causation and the correlation factors, right? They could get into it. Yeah. That's not why people elect a mayor, a governor, or a president. Essentially, it's I'm taking a measure of this person based upon my assessment of what's happening in my community, in my state or the country. And I want that man or woman to represent me and people like me.
0: No, I think I think that's right. And kind of to switch gears because now you're running the Obama Foundation. You're the CEO of the Obama Foundation. I want you to talk a little bit about, Uh, what it is holistically but in essence part of its mission is to help raise the future leaders not only of this country but of this world can you talk a little bit about the obama foundation um, why you decided to join it and lead it and what you're going to do now that you're at the helm
1: Imagine a world where my words, not theirs. What if we could find a million Barack Obamas and a million Michelle Obamas throughout the planet yeah. and connect them together in a way that's never been done before? What good could flow from that? Yeah. Because how, what if we find these leaders in communities throughout the country and the world uh, and not just connect them, but instill them with a leadership ethos You begin with the view that someone is not my opponent, but it's someone who is a fellow citizen. First, even if you fundamentally disagree with them, even people who fundamentally disagreed with the policy decisions and the politics of Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, believe they were decent and good people because of the approach they had. can we create a normative environment around these leaders that guides their work going forward? And so what have you done using the comparative advantages? You have said we can reach into communities because that's where trust is built. They, they've both uh, said to us, let's look out 50 years
0: yeah.
1: and begin to do the work that's required today so that we are building an institution that is predicated on leadership that brings people together rather than stokes the flames of tribalism and hyperpartisanship that brings people apart. So that's the conception.
0: Obviously, President Obama and Mrs. Obama have massive um, platforms to promote and advocate for the things that come out of this program. Is that partially how they'll use these platforms that they're building, their personal platforms? Certainly, there are just millions and millions of people across the country and around the world who care about what they say and and want to know what they think. I would imagine that would be an extraordinarily powerful network in in and to itself alongside of everything that you create.
1: They both are extraordinary storytellers. Yeah. Because they understand that it is story that coheres society, develops culture, in the way we as humans process information. And so, uh, best example, after the George Floyd killing uh, last summer, on his Twitter feed, he, being Barack Obama, uh, gave mention of the fact that he was going to be doing a town hall with John Lewis and Brian Stevenson. Yeah. And over the course of the next week, we had 700,000 plus people go to Obama.org and learn how they could take action in their communities. And all of the action steps, Jill, were undergirded by this approach to community building. That's about in my words, addition and not subtraction.
0: Right. Yeah. It's amazing. So, you know, we're, we're kind of in this period of uncertainty, right? We're recovering from COVID and there are massive dichotomies in how Americans see their country. Um, but some things we know we need to unify around food insecurity being one of them. It was just such a pervasive problem. And we all need to go through this period of recovery. Hopefully we're in a period of recovery now from COVID. And so does that shift or make you think a specific way about the next year or two in in running the foundation and and where you'll focus. Um, Because I do think that the country is looking for beacons uh, in terms of direction and beliefs that we should be holding as we move through and out of this crisis.
1: The launch of the U.S. Leaders Program is something that is going to happen within the next two years. Now, crucially important. Uh, And he specifically reminds us of this all the time. If we are just talking to young emerging leaders, not established leaders and not people um, who want to lead at some point, but folks who are on the cusp who are from Boston, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, in any other blue Democratic-leaning yeah. enclave,
0: right. we're
1: missing the point.
0: Yeah. Totally. Absolutely.
1: What can we do in parts of the United States where the very name Obama triggers a visceral negative reaction? We need to make sure that there are emerging leaders from those communities who don't who aren't necessarily the liberal or the progressive uh, leader. But essentially, okay, is there um, a individual in Appalachia, and I'm using this example because he was one of our Obama fellows who is working on um, opioid uh, addiction mm-hmm. uh, and has both a uh, public health but also a faith approach,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So that that piece of the work over the course of the next two years where we have to model not that we have you know we can't show up in a place to say well we are a hundred percent right and we have the virtue of truth on our side yeah that goes against uh, the very um, the goal that the president mrs obama had
0: well and we need to get everyone talking again too right uh, listening listening
1: okay.
0: yeah yeah hearing for sure so how do people learn more about what you're doing at the Obama Foundation? How do do they support you as you grow this organization? Where where do they go?
1: Obama.org, you know, follow us on social media, uh, sign up for the email list because for everyone who is listening uh, to this, uh, over the course of the next two years, um, whether it's around the development of a leaders program, the amplification of the work that we've done with My Brother's Keeper for young men and boys of color in the United States, Girls Opportunity Alliance um, in terms of girls' education, the stories we are gonna be sharing with you of extraordinary young values-based leaders both in the United States and globally, I hope will be inspiration not to say, oh, aren't these amazing people who are doing amazing stuff? That's necessary, but insufficient. Because at the end of the day, our goal is to say, well, hey, if they did that, right. I can do that.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. I think the story is great. It's just the beginning of the story, too. Your story is always fun to listen to also. So thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Jill, it's a great pleasure. Thank you so much for what you are doing and what you do every day. It's a real benefit. Thanks, David. Thanks, Jill. you.
0: Thank you for listening to my conversation with David Seamus, CEO of the Obama Foundation, which is off and running, soon to have a new campus in Chicago and already working with future leaders around the globe to help make the planet a better place for us all. To learn more, go to Obama.org and follow them on social media. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.